0: Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Before we turn to this passage, I just want to remind us that as we're reading the Bible, we find ourselves come to different genres, help us, um, and understanding that type of genre helps us understand what we're reading. Um, We do this all the time, whether we know it or not. Um, when you pick up a newspaper, you start reading it as a newspaper. Uh, compared to when you then pick up a magazine, you're reading a different type of genre written, or even just a letter. A handwritten letter is different from a formal letter, or even we have signs that we know. When you get that piece of mail in the, the um, mailbox, it's, it's stamped and all over it. It's time-sensitive, very important, uh, normally, we can tell the difference between something that is an advertisement that claimed to be time sensitive and very important compared to something that is formal and uh, So when we turn to scripture, we need to understand that and have that in the back of our minds whether we 're reading a psalm a poetry that helps us understand uh, with the different types of genre that we 're reading now historical narrative actually makes up the majority of the Bible. And sadly, I think that a lot of people don't understand how to read historical narrative, um, and then that, that damages how they then read the Bible. I think that that's why we normally like to read uh, epistles, uh, discourse, because it's right out there. The, the person is spelling it out before our eyes, where historical narrative is a little bit more subtle. We need to be able to read those portions of Scripture and read them as literature, now, our general exposure to literature then is in fiction books, um, and there's overlap with how we read fiction books from how we read the Bible, and I don't mean that to, to, to demote the Bible. What I mean is that we're reading literature, that you see characters, a plot, uh, a start, an end, a conflict that's resolved, um, but we, we often, when we read fiction, that's all made up. When we're reading historical narrative, there's there's it's history. It's history told to us through story. And it's not made up history, it's true history that actually happened. And one thing that I think is is a little bit of a challenge is then when you get to passages of scripture that it's not just about characters and plots. Sometimes there's things in the story that Are placed at the center of the story that help us understand the story more. Uh, A fictional example would be the skull in Hamlet. Uh, Yorick, uh, he has a part to play in the uh, story of Hamlet. He's the skull of the court jester. It it takes and speaks of uh, the contrast of Hamlet's royalty to uh, this court jester. But it's not just merely Yorick plays this part of a court gesture. He, he symbolizes something in the play. It's more than just the bones of something, but he has some form of character of, and his symbolism of death. Death is there central to this scene, especially with Hamlet and Yorick, especially then at the gravesite with the gravedigger coming in. Now, we, we see this, and we've seen this, and we've pointed this out, is even if we we're studying First and Second Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 4 to 6, we saw that the ark of God took on and was important to the telling of the story. It's not merely that there's this object that is moved around in these chapters, but this The ark of God took on this representation of the power and might of God to be able to defend himself, to fight his own battles. This battle against the gods, you might say. Another example that comes to mind is in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. You have the, the people of God. You have Moses. You have God. But it's all centered around the mountain. The people of God gather and camp at the bottom of the mountain. Moses then goes up the mountain. The cloud of God descends upon the mountains. The relationship in this is, is that of to the mountain. When they say that Moses is going up and going down, it's not merely just trying to inform you that he's changing in sea level. What he's saying is that the mountain then represents something. The ability to go up and meet with God and God coming down to meet with his people. So now when we look at 2 Samuel chapter 18 and 19, there's a similar thing that we need to be able to pay attention to. And that helps us understand this passage, what the author is trying to show us and I mentioned this last time, but we'll look at it more in detail here, but that is the gate. The gate takes a very important part to play in these two chapters. We saw this last week in verse 4. The king stands there at the gate, at the side of the gate, as the people marched out by the hundreds and by the thousands. There he is, King David, standing by the gate. And in This passage tonight, we'll see in verse 24 that he's sitting between the two gates, the watchman on the roof of the gate. Then in verse 33, after he hears of his son Absalom's death, he goes over the gate. And then verse 8 of chapter 19 the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. The people came before the king. And again, this is not merely just some uh, story about a doorway. It's not just a hole in a fence. And especially in this time, the gate was not just a way to get in and out of the city. The gate was the, the town hall, the epicenter of the city. A more appropriate terminology would not necessarily be the town center, but the the courthouse. This is where you would come to bring your case to be heard, by the elders, by the judge, the king, who would come and hear the cases and declare a verdict. Just as someone today would make a comment about sitting on a throne, it's not merely just a comment about someone sitting on an object of their posture on a chair, so the throne has this representation, a position of power and might. And sitting at the gate represents that role of a judge and justice. It's Eli, a judge who sits at the gate. In verse four of cha- verse 18 of chapter 4 in 1 Samuel, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. He judged Israel for forty years. Samuel, a judge, sits at the gate. Saul approached Samuel in the gate. Tell me where the house of the seer. Just before in uh, in Ruth, Boaz goes to be able to to the gate to be able to find justice to work out a legal matter. Who is going to be Naomi and Ruth's redeemer? Who is going to redeem the land of Amilamech? Who will then provide the child to be able to carry on his name? So we see this this in understanding that the gate is not merely just a, a, a prop. Just a way to describe a picture that we see. It speaks of justice and judge. Remember even Absalom in chapter 15. Rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. When any man had a dispute and come before the king for judgment, again, where would they be going to find judgment? It would be that of the gate. Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? They would say, Your servant is from such and such a tribe in Israel. Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. And every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Again, this man came to the the gate to find justice. And Absalom's political slogan, among many things, would be, you know, justice for everyone. Justice for all tribes. A judge who listens. Whatever that might mean. So as we look now to the second half of 2 Samuel chapter 18, we need to be able to remember that this gate tells us about what's happening, particularly what's David's relationship to the gate. The David is here now king, but throughout these chapters we've noted that David's role as king is flawed. He's not acting like a king. He's only thinking as a father. So now let's turn to uh, chapter 18 and look more in detail. Now really the center part of this chapter is the death of Absalom in verses 14 and 15 when Joab turned to this man and says, I will not waste my time with you. took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And the young men, ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Now that presents a problem. The problem is that there's no phone, text messages, there's no emails. The sound of the trumpet is blown, but it then doesn't deliver the correct information to those who need to know it. You need to then be able to pass on that information to other people. And the way that you would do that is via messenger. So we see, how does that message now come to David? We find this in verses 19 to 23. And Ahimaaz the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king. The Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news. "'because the king's son is dead.' "'Then Joab said to the Cushite, "'Go, tell the king what you have seen.' "'And the Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. "'And Ahimez, the son of Zaduk, said again to Joab, "'Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite.' "'And Joab said, "'Why will you run, my son, "'seeing that there will have no reward for the news?' "'Come what may,' he said, "'I will run.' So he said to him, run. And Ahimez ran by the way of the plain and outrun, outran the Cushite. Now the author, whoever it might be, Gad or Nathan at this point, we're not too sure. But the author spends a lot of time on this conversation. It's always helpful, especially when you're reading historical narrative, to, to focus on why is this story here? Why, does it, why is it told this way? What, what is the, why is the author spending time on this portion? You ever notice that they often will not spend a lot of time on battles, of things that we want to know the information of? They often will say that there are many people lost that day, and they give a number and then pass on. But here, there's this long conversation about this conversation between uh, Joab and Ahimez, the son of Zadok. He's the son of the priest, Zaduk. There's two priests there. And Ahimaaz, along with Jonathan, are the ones who carry the news of the defeat of the council of Ahitophel. But here, Ahimaaz is very uh, eager to be able to carry this news. And Ahimaaz actually sees this as good news, right, right? In verse 19, he he says to uh, the son of Zadok, let me run and carry the news to the king. What news is he going to carry? And he says, the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And the news that he wants to deliver is the Lord has delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies. But Joab, though, looks at the other side, Now often you notice that Joab is someone who really gets his hands dirty a lot of times, but I think a lot of the times he gets his hands dirty is not for the sake of trying to get his hands dirty, unlike his brother. We'll see this again in chapter uh, 19. But Joab often thinks about David, and I think he's willing to get his hands dirty for David. He ultimately wants the best for him. But Joab turns to Ahimaz and says, you are not going to carry any news today. You can do it another day. Today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. So Ahimaz says, I have good news to say, the Lord has delivered David from all of his enemies. Joab says, you shall not carry news because the king's son is dead. So Joab turns and sends the Cushite. You know, there's no reference to help us understand anything about this man, rather than that he is the one that delivers this message. Cush, or other times in the Bible, it's translated as an Ethiopian, is the son of Ham. Interestingly, that uh, Moses' wife was a Cushite, Zipporah. So here we don't know how this Cushite came to serve on David's army. The closest uh, example, thing that we could I could find, was in, in Judges chapter three, when the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He sold them into the hand of Cushan-Rishatharim, the king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cushan-Rishatharim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So often when you would defeat a people, often they would ultimately say, let us surrender and we'll be your servants. There's two options in those cases. You either are wiped out, This is what happened to the the people of Jabesh-Gilead. When the wicked king came, Nahash came and said, I'll uh, I'll wipe you out. And they said, no, well, let us serve you. He said, well, no, you're not going to serve you. I'm going to wipe you out. There's no option of serving you. I'll pluck out your eyes, basically. So here's most likely that they came and joined the Israelites from this point in Judges, from Osniel, the son of Kinnahs. So the Cushite runs off bearing this news. But again, Ahimaz is very, very eager to be able to pass on this news. We see this in verses 22 to uh, uh, 23. And Ahimaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, "'Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite.' So Joab said, "'Why will you run, my son, "'seeing that you will have no reward for the news?' Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, run. And him has run by the plane and outrun the Cushite. He has a simple philosophy, let me run. Come what may, it doesn't matter what happened, what the outcome is, I want to run, I want to tell. Now, uh, how does he win? Uh, there's, you know, we're not told the specifics. Um, potentially, that they ran different routes. He ran by the plane, he said. Um, so he sees the Cushite run and he says, He's going to get there slower. Let me run. Let me go deliver the news. He's running in the wrong way. The Cushite runs down in the green there to able to pass on to Mahanaim where David is. And uh, Ahimaaz said, he's, he's going to take a long time to get there. Let me run the other way. He's going to run through the fields. Now, the planes. Now, that, that could be the case, or it, it depends on what you focus on. He outran the Kushite. Does that mean that then he's faster than the Kushite? They ran the same way, but Himas is faster. Now, we're not told specifically. Um, when the, later on, when the, the guards are looking, they said, that looks like the running of Ahimez. So maybe he is known for the style of running that he's very, very fast. We don't know the specifics. But now two messengers have been sent, and the author brings us back to Mahanaim, where David is. And where is David? David is sitting between the two gates. And the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. And the man called out and told the king, And the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. And the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. So here you have two men running. The watchman is able to be able to see these two men coming towards the gate. David is right in saying, If there is only one running alone, then they bring news. Often if people would flee... Then they would all run to be able to get back to the city, so you would see more than one. But often, if you're sending a messenger, you would only send one messenger. And he says, if there's a runner alone, it means there is news. If there's two runners, it also means that there's more news to be able to come. So now they're at a, um, Mahanaim, and here's David, and here comes himas, And we find out news from himas. In verses 27 to 30, the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running over him as the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. Then him has cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the king. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? And Ahimez answered, When Joaz sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand there. So he turned aside and stood still. So he sees this man, and again, he's able to see, that looks like the running of Ahimez. So he cries out, and the news which Himas again, we've seen this before, what type of news does he deliver? He believes he's delivering good news. And the reason we might understand that Joab said you are not going to deliver good news today because the king's son is dead, he understands that as is a good man, therefore he's delivering good news. So Joab somewhat implies that he's he shouldn't deliver it because he's, you need to be delivering bad news. This is one reason, but here he cries out to the king and says, all is well, all is well. Shalom, peace. He bows before the king, blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against the Lord, the king. The Nehemiah comes with good news. Again, his enemy has been defeated. And this, this word of delivered speaks of, of, of justice, judgment coming. to to bring judgment and justice to a situation, to put things right. Absalom's news to Ahimaaz was justice coming to King David. The rebel, the treason, had been overthrown. The one who was rightly dethroned is now back on the throne again. Now we see this, we've seen this throughout this whole story, we've been reminded that this is what's going to happen, even David's prayer. In Psalm verse 3, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessings be on your people. Or in Psalm 63, another psalm written at this time, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth, they shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. And Ahimaaz cries out, Shalom, peace! But then King David turns and says, Is it well? Shalom, is, is it peaceful with the young man, Absalom? Now, again, the, the play on words here is that Absalom's name means the father of peace. But that's not exactly who he is. Him as turns around and says, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I did not know what, what it was. Now, Joab has specifically told Himez that you shall not go and tell the king the news because the king's son is dead. Himez doesn't mention that. We're not told any reason why. Whether this great commotion uh, speaks of this conversation, Joab knows he's going to go strike him down. We have no other record of what's happening, no explanation. So I think to, to go into that is merely just speculation. So Amaz comes with the news to David. But then the news of the Cushite comes. Verse 31 to 32. Behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with this young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. The Cushite come, and he says, this is good news. Good news for my Lord, the king. Again, what has happened? What is the good news that he delivered? He delivers the same news that Ahimaaz does. The Lord has delivered you from this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. But again, David's concern is not those who rise up against him. His concern is about his son, Absalom. Is it peace, shalom, with the young man, Absalom? Now the Cushite answers it, unlike Ahim as before. May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. The Cushite says it is good news, the Ahimez says that it's good news, but then how does David react? verse 33, we see how David reacts. And the king was deeply moved, went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. He leaves the position of the gate, that that position where he he judges justly, justice happens, and he goes to the chamber above the gate. Now notice that Himaz and the Cushite refer to Absalom. Refers to Absalom as the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. Verse 31, the Cushite says, from all who rose up against you. Verse 32, is it well with my son Absalom? Cushite said, may the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil, be like that young man. They use terminology like enemies, those who rise up against you, against the king. That as we've seen, this, this conspiracy, this treason, is a better term, grew strong and the people of Absalom kept increasing. That he came to Jerusalem, not to be able to try and work out peace. He came and David rightly said, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape from us from Absalom. Go quickly, let us, lest he overtake us quickly and bring us down to ruin. On us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So they see him as an enemy, someone rising up against the king. But yet David sees him as his son, my son, my son, my son, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son, five times. Even how he refers to it, is it well with the young man Absalom? To him, he still. A young child. I'm sure as a dad you remember those moments. You sit your child on your knee and you played with them. Or as David played his harp and ate with Absalom as a young boy. Maybe even Absalom tried on his armor or played with his sword. Or even wore his crown. Now we'll see Joab's rebuke next week. But we do need to hear the cry of David as he's in the chamber that day. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, my son, my son. And if we think of this merely as just A weeping or lament over the loss of a son, I think I think we really don't understand the depth of of David's emotion. It goes far deeper than just losing a child. Remember what Nathan had told David? Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold... I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it in secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. That here, the the judgment upon David's house is the sword shall come from within your house. David turns and he says that I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan turns to David and says, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. But in verse 14, it says, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child, the son who is born to you shall die. Now, this specifically speaks of his infant son in chapter uh, 12. But not only has he lost his infant son, Amnon is now gone, now Absalom. He sits there and cries, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. When, When will this judgment end? Will the sword devour forever, as Abner questions And David sits here now weeping not just for the loss of his son, but for the sin which caused this. He sees it connected not just to Absalom's sin, but also his sin as well. That the sword will be in his house because of what he did to Uriah's house with the sword. Michael Milton has a book called The Songs in the Night found this uh, quoted in Richard Phillips' commentary on Second Samuel. But Michael Milton breaks down this and, and says, this cry here in the chamber above the gate is three things. It's a cry of loss, a cry of regret, a cry of longing. And he puts it this way. Michael Milton says, David cries with a cry of a man who wishes that he could go back and change the clock. If only he had not taken more than one wife. If only he had repented of that and sought to be, bring peace to his family. If only he had not plotted the murder of Uriah. If only he had intervened as a parent to deal with the horrible situation with Tamar, Tamar and Amnon. And to the quiet, the heart of Absalom. If only, if only. These are the saddest words in the English language. And here this cry is not just the cry of a loss of a son, but also the cause of why this is happening. That David here weeps above the chamber of the gate is a weep of regret of what happened and why the sword is devouring his house And here David is, is weeping. He's weeping for his own sin. Also maybe for the sin of his son. But then Christ, the greater king to come, the son of David. He does not have any sin to be able to weep of of his own. But he would then die instead of the rebellious children that rise up against him, the enemies. The author of Hebrews in chapter 5 puts it this way. In the days of his, Jesus' flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Here David cries out, my son, my son, that I would die instead of you. That he saw maybe if if God was to punish me for the sin of Uriah, Absalom would not, would still be dead. But here, the opposite is true. Jesus, the greater son of David comes, he does die instead of the rebellious son, that the rebellious son might find forgiveness in him. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. For His glory and His gospel.